Thank you. It's a real treat to be here. Let me please introduce Paula and ask you to uh, join me in welcoming and thanking her for the amazing book. She is a 1995 West Point grad. She's also the mother of two, living in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, but also last year and the year before, often found in Afghanistan as an embedded journalist, doing a lot of work in various parts of the country. She is uh, an intelligence officer in the Army Reserve still to this day. She is an ongoing student of war, uh, working at various levels on different projects, but certainly all in the education of David Petraeus is a monumental accomplishment and a fantastic book. And so I want to thank you for it, and please all join me in thanking her as well. Thank you for your help. And what we're going to do today, of course, is in the informal spirit of Aspen, try to just get a conversation going and then enlist all of you with your questions. I know David Petraeus is a very important historical figure. I think Paula has done the most exhaustive study of General Petraeus. And even though much of her focus was on his 12 months in command in Afghanistan, the book, as you can tell from the subtitle, is about his whole life and how he learned the various things that are crucial to who he is as a person, who he was as a general, who he still is today as the director of the CIA. And in a second, I'm just going to ask Paula an open-ended question to talk about the education of David Petraeus and some of the key lessons that he learned in life that he's tried to apply to his work that have been so important and so special about him. But before I did that, I, I thought I would ask Paula really just a more human question about David Petraeus. And there are a couple other people like Megan O'Sullivan here who know him well also. Uh, mm. but, but I realize many of you haven't had the pleasure that some of us have to get to know this remarkable American. And so I thought just sort of humanizing him right at the start by asking Paula what some of the most distinctive attributes are of his character, what he's like as a person, how you would just sum him up in terms of, you, you've known a lot of great military leaders and a lot of very successful people, but I think we would both agree David Petraeus is, is, is pretty special even in that league. And how would you uh, explain that or what characteristics are the most distinctive in your mind? Well, thank you, Mike, for the opportunity. And, and first, let me thank you for your leadership in providing insights to General David Petraeus and any other of the commanders who've, who've served there and who are serving now. Mike is a uh, quite an institution of, in and of himself in Washington, even though he's very humble. So it's an honor to be up here with you today. Um, and you can answer all the questions you're going to ask me probably better than I can because you've worked so closely with David Petraeus. But um, in my experience of uh, about five years now of getting to know him, I have come to know him as a friend and, and a mentor. Um, as a, he's one of my PhD advisors, my external PhD advisors, so I know him in several capacities. And I think anyone who does know him, Megan, you could agree, and others, um, know that he is very driven, um, and it is, he's driven to serve his country. I think duty on our country, one of the mottos of West Point, it, he fully embraces it. And in fact, he'll admit he embraced it to the point of putting duty on our country before his family. And you can see that in, in his service eight years overseas, away from his, his family. Um, thankfully, now he has a little bit more time to spend with them. In fact, I think he, he ran with his uh, ranger son this morning, and they're going paddle boarding or something this afternoon. So, um, he's, But he's very driven to achieve and to contribute to the nation, and he's driven by a desire to be consequential, make a difference in the world. I admire that a lot. I think many other leaders are like that, but um, that's at the core of his existence. Um, he's driven to produce, produce results, and we can talk a little bit about where that came from. I write in the book about the role of his father, who was a crusty old Dutch sea captain and had children late in life. He, um, he came to America when the Nazis invaded Holland, and he couldn't turn his vessel around, so he settled in New York. And he met Miriam Howell, David Petraeus' mother, 
but um, immediately was recruited by the merchant marines, went back out to sea, and they didn't have children until he was much older. So he, as David relays, had a difficult time relating to his children. And he almost dealt with them as if they were sailors and just demanded results and did not tolerate any excuses. So David Petraeus often says he hears his father's voice in his head saying, results, boy, and no excuses. And I think that drives him, again, to achieve um, for the greater good, but probably there's some psychology there. He's trying to please uh, a father figure or, or something. that We can all relate to that if you look at your own psychology. Um, he is quite a physical specimen. He really loves to work out. I think at the agency they call him a genetic mutant now. Um, for any of you who've worked out with him, he's 59 and he can run around 630 miles right now, 630 minute miles, uh, do over 120 push-ups, 100 some, 120 sit-ups, 250 flutter kicks, which is, which is pretty good for someone who's been in a high demand job. He, he keeps physical fitness a priority. He used to say that your body is the ultimate weapon system. And you can understand how an infantryman would think like that because you've got to be totally self-sufficient. Um, now he's more focused on the mind as the, as the ultimate weapon system, but I think he'll always value physical fitness and use that as a tool, both to mentor um, and inspire others. And maybe that's not so unique amongst his peers, but I, I'd say it's something that stands out for me with him. Um, I think he, another thing that really stands out is his passion for mentoring and teaching. And um, we can go into this in a little bit more detail, but he taught at West Point, obviously. Um, he had great teachers, like General Galvin, who had also taught at West Point. And he had great mentors who were, were teaching him ostensibly. And he feels almost an obligation, but, but of course he receives some joy from it, an obligation to help the next generation and mentor quite a bit. So um, he's a relentless mentor, and sometimes that gets frustrating for mentees because he's <laughs> very involved in, in guiding, but I think at the end of the day you appreciate that this person who's such a figure in our nation's history is willing to take the time to mentor, write letters of recommendation for young officers who want to go to grad school or apply for a White House fellowship or just bounce ideas off each other. Um, so his mentoring, those are three things. I'll stop there. Yeah, so let me, that's great because that also makes for a natural segue now into sort of a more formal question about his education, which is the subtitle of your book and I think a brilliant subtitle because uh, those of you who haven't read the book, please do, please buy it uh, also. And, uh, what you'll find is that it tells the story of Afghanistan, but it also goes back, has flashbacks, and uh, various points in Petraeus' life where he learned key lessons. And what I wanted to invite you to do now, Paula, was to just give us three or four of the key things he learned along the way. You mentioned the nature of his family environment, his boy psychology, what his father expected of him. And obviously, he didn't stop learning there. He went through West Point in the 1970s during Vietnam. He then came into the Hollow Army in the mid-70s and made his mark there for a while or, you know, got started. Um, went through various tasks, various, uh, you know, military responsibilities. And you and I can both cite those in great detail. But what are the key things he learned? Three or four, whether they were episodes, experiences, lessons, and were there failures along the way, too? Did he just sort of, was he always the golden boy who learned things before he made the mistake, or are there cases where he actually had to learn from his mistakes or recover somehow from a mistake? That's a big question. Yes, it's his whole life, so yeah, <laughs> yes. have some fun with it. We'll take a few minutes. Two minutes, okay. Um, first, let me give a little background. So this research project began as my doctoral dissertation, and I wanted to look at the role of a maverick in an organization in galvanizing institutional change. So I was looking at him as a case study in how he changed the Army, how he 
reintroduced this old doctrine and infused it into the force, into the, you know, the, the road to deployment, if you will, and how we train, equip, and organize and, and fight. Um, and um, it evolved then into the, into the book. So I had looked at three variables in that case study. I looked at his social networks and how they influenced his thinking, primarily his mentors, but also uh, directed telescopes. So subordinates that were out in the field, whether the field was on the National Security Council or in the Pentagon working as an aide to the chief of staff of the Army, he would reach out to these um, loyal subordinates, maybe former aides or just friends, and that gave him incredible situational awareness about what's going on on the National Security Council, what's going on in the chief of staff of the Army's office, and it could better inform his decision-making, whether in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, so social networks, mentors, directed telescope, think tankers, academia. The second thing I looked at was his education. So I went through West Point. I could relate a little bit to that experience, that formative experience. Um, and then I looked at his experience at Princeton, where, where Mike went. And that was one of the most formative experiences in his life because it, he was so out of his intellectual comfort zone. As a military officer who'd been kind of trained the way every other military officer is at Command and General Staff College, and um, you, know, you, you begin to fall into a little bit of group thing. And so he was forced out of that, that model and sitting next to peaceniks who didn't believe we should be at war, didn't believe in we should have this missile technology, whereas he used to negotiate the, the range of an ICBM. Now he's you know, being challenged in other ways. So I, I examined that experience for him. The third thing I looked at was um, his field experiences or deployments. And there were a couple that were key. The first was um, a trip to Central America in the 1980s when his mentor, Jack, Gal Jack Galvin, was the commander of Southern Command. And there were six insurgencies going on in that region at the time. Um, and David Petraeus had been raised in this sort of peacetime army. So to see those insurgencies up, up close and personal, and to hear his mentor talk about, this is what we can expect in the future threat horizon. We will have, this is what we'll be facing rather than um, a conventional war. And he took those lessons, infused them into his, um, his dissertation which wasn't focused on insurgency necessarily, but just understanding how we deal with it, the importance of unity of effort and civil-military relations and so forth. Um, so Central America, and then he went to Haiti and was doing nation building, if you will, and worked on rule of law initiatives, all of which he took and brought into his experience in, in Iraq, in Mosul. The Haiti was 94, 95. Yes, yep, thank you. Um, and they looked at his experience in Bosnia, which he arrived in the summer of 2001, and the focus was on the hunt for war criminals, um, and then 9-11 happened, and they transitioned the mission to a hunt for terrorists that were transiting through the Balkans into Europe. And that was the first time he really worked with the um, intelligence community writ large and the joint spe special operations community. And he came to understand the importance of the joint interagency uh, task forces in combating problems like these that are transnational and, and touch so many different areas. So I looked at those three factors. Um, now, to your question. <laughs> um, what were the greatest lessons he learned? Um, I, I think he, you know, seeing insurgency um, up close and personal was very formative for him, and he had to see it to believe that that was really the future uh, threat that we'd be facing. And he becomes kind of religious about um, that the military needs to change to adapt its ways. And I had access to letters that, that Petraeus shared with several of his mentors over 30 years, so I could see Captain Petraeus writing to um, General Galvin and, and talking about how important it was to change the doctrine. And they had a competition going. Who could change Army doctrine and bring this counterinsurgency doctrine back into, into play? Um, and I also saw the mentoring. So the, the, you know, 
Galvin would write back and would say, you can't do this or that. The force structure needs to be in you know, a, a different sort of approach. Um, so great learning experience for him. Um, I, can, I can dive into a little bit more depth in like, what he learned in Haiti. But I think recognizing, again, the importance of um, multilateral relationships, not something the US, the US can't be the world's policeman. He came to realize that pretty early. Um, and in, in Bosnia, again, the importance of the interagency experience, which he's brought all of those he brought all of that to Iraq and then to Afghanistan, and I think now to the agency as well. And he's, he kind of has the same approach to, to leadership and driving an organization. Um, I'll probably stop there. We can talk more about That's the agency. That's good. Yeah, it takes us right up to the last decade. And now let me just ask about a couple of those experiences, which, of course, are the experiences that made him famous. And then we'll look forward to your uh, thoughts as well. So please be thinking ahead to what questions you'd like to pose. But let me, let me now actually ask about what was for not only him, but for Megan, for anybody who was trying to work on Iraq, a frustrating period, um, which was, of course, the early years after the invasion. And there was, as many folks know here, uh, a time when he was the two-star general up in northern Iraq in Mosul and vicinity. But then the next job is the one I want to ask you about, the three-star job when he was in charge of training the Iraqi forces. And... um, my own take, which I'll just mention very briefly, is that he learned a lot of lessons in this period, sometimes through the school of hard knocks. Yeah. And so I just wanted to ask you to speak about that particular part of the, the time period in question, because it was when Petraeus was asked by President Bush to really make the Iraqi security force training effort very robust. And yet, we all know that even after Petraeus left that position at the end of 2005, Iraq did not get better. And so, I don't know, I'm not blaming General Petraeus, but obviously it was not the kind of turnaround that one might have hoped. And I wonder if, if there are any lessons that he drew from that period of time that were important in your eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of lessons. Um, and just to um, open the lens a little bit, the book doesn't focus much on his time in Iraq. I felt that a number of other books really covered that period, and so I focused primarily on his year in Afghanistan. Um, but I do focus on that period. There were some, uh, there was a school of hard knocks, if you will, uh, and we, Mike and I had the privilege of sitting in with General Petraeus for his oral history interview when he left the military, 20 hours worth of <laughs> interviews. Um, so we've discussed some of this before. But he, he wrote an op-ed, and basically I think was, uh, the thing he learned was don't over-promise and under-deliver. And his op-ed was saying that things were on track and, and that you know, we're, we're meeting the goals with rebuilding the Iraqi forces when um, there was defection amongst the ranks and, and the quality of the troops was not that great and so forth. You may know a little bit more detail about that. But he, the, it was perceived, as many of you in the room probably remember, that he was becoming a political general at that point. And he was trying to support the Bush campaign. This was right before the election. I think it's September that article came out. Um, and so he was excoriated for that. So he learned not to write any more op-eds. <laughs> um, he also um, faced a lot of obstacles from his immediate superior and could not get the resources he really wanted and the support is. So I think he, as you've probably seen him operate before, he found ways to kind of go around and meet or talk directly with Secretary Wolfowitz, for example, to try to get more support. Um, so I don't know if that's a lesson to learn, but you know he, he's very resourceful, and he knows... He's, he's a risk taker. He's called himself an insurgent. Um, he's willing to push the line. But I've heard many senior officers and um, uh, civilian leaders say he knows when to, where the line is, and he doesn't cross it, and he always comes prepared with the evidence to support whatever course of action he's fighting for. Um, 
I think you know, he, he recognized that we'd never done an industrial scale um, security force assistance uh, initiative like we did in Iraq. So he did the best he could. He built a great team. And I don't know that he would change anything that, that he did. Maybe you can add our counterpoint to that. No, that's good. But I, I, I want to ask you one more question about Iraq, but now his period in command. And then we'll go to Afghanistan, uh, where you did so much of your field research and really focused a lot of the core of the book. But I think it's uh, great to follow through the education of David Petraeus. Again, I, I think the way you stitched your book together is extremely insightful, it allows one to gain a lot of insight. So I think it's useful to go through this period. Now let me ask you, even though it wasn't the main focus of your book, about the period of time when he became, certainly uh, in modern times, our most famous general, perhaps our most successful. And I wanted to just ask you a little bit of an open-ended question about how you view that period of 19 months when he was in command in Iraq. Um, whether you want to say what he did that was most important, whether you want to even put it in historical perspective against the other great generals of our history in terms of his accomplishments vis-a-vis -vis, you know, those of previous eras and previous conflicts. I'd just like to ask you first you know, that kind of a broad question about how all these lessons and educational experiences that he had had up until then really came together in what was an amazing mm -hmm. period in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Well, since this is the Aspen Ideas Festival, let me focus on his, uh, his, one of his key... Um, talking points when he gives a leadership talk. He says a strategic leader, and he's, he reflects a lot on his time in Iraq as a strategic leader. A strategic leader needs first to get the big ideas right. And the big idea in Iraq was that we had to protect the population, and then several ideas followed from that. You had to get the troops off the fobs, off the forward operating bases, and get them to live amongst the population. Um, once we cleared an area, we had to hold it. So we were clearing areas, but then moving on, so insurgents would move right back in. And third, that if you do the coin math, we couldn't kill our, uh, all the insurgents, so we had to capture some and reconcile with some. So um, he felt that getting those big ideas right, and he doesn't take effort or credit for them all, all himself. Obviously, there's a team supporting the, this, this big idea, a small team. You were probably involved in the team. No, she was. <laughs> and Megan O'Sullivan was, and um, a few folks at the American Enterprise Institute, and um, he had top cover from General Keene, of course, and President Bush believed in him. And the name of the book, by the way, comes from a discussion that Petraeus had with President Bush when he was asking for additional brigades to come in, and, and President Bush said, so, you mean this is double down, Petraeus? And he said, no, Mr. President, we're all in. And, um, and that's how he's lived his life. I think that was a metaphor for his larger life as well. In any case, he felt we didn't have the big ideas right. We were just focused on enemy-centric coin, which means just killing and not protecting the population. And as all of you probably know by now, since we've been watching these wars for a decade, um, the counterinsurgency is, is, a, is a war for the, to win the hearts and minds of the people. If we don't win it, then the insurgents will, and then they'll support the insurgents. That's a very simplified <laughs> way of looking at it, of course, but um, he recognized in Iraq that, that the approach was wrong. And the rush to transition to Iraqi security force lead, back to your earlier question, was premature. And I think that's what the pre previous command was really focused on. So now, uh, by the way, just as a lighter note, although it wasn't so light for him at the time, but this whole philosophy of being all in in life, of course, contributed arguably to his um, second near-fatal experience in his life, his parachute accident, which I'm sure some of you know of. I don't know if you want to talk about it, but I'll just mention that he almost got himself killed because he was... You know, it, there were reasons to be doing this kind of parachuting because infantry uh, elite officers and, and their forces need to be good at this kind of airborne operation. Uh, but for those of you who don't know, not only did he, did he get shot accidentally in a training mission about 
a quarter century ago, but he broke his hip and could have been worse about a decade or just 11, 12 years ago, I guess now, in, in that experience. Um, I'm, I'm glad that it was no worse. Yes, yeah, it was actually his, his pelvis, and he started right. swimming a week later. He was running nine months later um, and, and ran an Army 10-miler, I think, and, and, uh, and beat Stan McChrystal, which he's very proud of. <laughs> um, but he's, he's very resilient, and that drive to, you know, this voice to get back in the arena continually calls him. Yeah. And he's obviously got great physical stamina to be able to do that, but Holly, his wife, banned him from ever jumping again. And it's killing him because their son, who, who just joined the Rangers, is now in a free fall course and has done 37 jumps in the last couple of months, and he just wants to go out there with him so badly, but he's honoring his wife's request. So now that we've um, uh, talked a little bit about various aspects of his life, and certainly his Iraq experience, where his accomplishments were so extraordinary, in fact, I'm not an expert military historian, but I would put them up with any general in our nation's history, frankly, in terms of the difficulty of the endeavor uh, and the accomplishment. It may not have been as much of a mortal threat to our nation as the Civil War or World War II, but the actual generalship involved, I think, was on a plane with anybody else, if not above. But let me now finish on Afghanistan, which is the topic that you emphasize in your book and where even this amazing person obviously had his frustrations. And we were talking earlier, we talked many times about why Afghanistan is so hard. And um, it's better in many ways, and it's, I think, more hopeful than a lot of people appreciate. But let me put the question to you in a provocative way, and this is my last question, so others, please be prepared to jump in here in just a second. But why has Afghanistan been so resilient, even against the outstanding attributes and abilities of a Dave Petraeus, finishing, or following a Stan McChrystal, preceding a John Allen, uh, three pretty amazing generals, Petraeus arguably the best of you know, recent decades, and yet Afghanistan's only begun to turn better in some domains, uh, arguably not in others at all, and it's been quite a slog. So um, it, it, did, did Dave Petraeus make any mistakes there, or does this really just underscore the difficulty of the endeavor, mm -hmm. or is there something else about this task mm -hmm. that's been so uh, frustrating for all of us? Well, first, I don't. I think we were comparing apples and oranges and pears and a few yeah. other fruits, probably. Um, the Civil War lasted longer. Grant was in charge longer, had you know, a bit more time to turn the situation around. Same with World War One and Two. Um, and in Iraq, Petraeus had more time in the ground. He had more experience. He had four years of experience, I think, before he even became commander there. Four I think. total, I guess. Yeah, um, maybe a little bit more than that, actually. Uh, in, in any case, it wasn't his entry-level position, and. Um, the, uh, and he had more presidential support. I'll throw that out there. Um, he, yeah. Sure, sorry. Your microphone is way off. It's very hard to hear your words. Okay. Um, maybe if I just hold it. It's not the mic? I'll speak. Is this better if I speak just straight ahead? Okay. Um, well, I will, I will project as a military officer should then. Okay. <laughs> it's all right? Okay. Um, where was I? Afghanistan is, is not Iraq. And, you know, if you look at just the basic infrastructure comparing, comparison between the two countries, if you look at that there had been an existence of a sort of federal system in, in Iraq, um, and they have a greater source of revenue, the country is much smaller than Afghanistan, so it was, it was difficult, you know. He knew that he was not going to be able to flip Afghanistan. He said that going in. He said that when he did his tour through Afghanistan before he became commander of Iraq. Uh, Secretary Rumsfeld asked Petraeus to do a quick look at um, Afghanistan in 2006, I think. And he recognized they're very different wars, very different landscape, very different human terrain and different enemy. Um, some things are similar, but um, 
he never thought it would turn as quickly as, as it did in Iraq. Um, he was frustrated, and we both sat with him and listened to him. Uh, when he reflected on his year in Afghanistan, he was, he was frustrated that he only had 12 months um, to make a difference. And he felt he left in the middle of the fighting season, and, and there, there could have been a bit of loss of momentum. Um, he would have liked to stay through the fighting season or even longer, maybe for another year. Um, he also recognized the challenge in, in his partner, his civilian partner, Ambassador Eikenberry, who lost faith in the mission, who um, the relationship between Eikenberry and President Karzai was quite toxic. And if you don't have that strong unity of effort between civilians and military, um, he, that's a principle of, of a good counterinsurgency campaign. And so he quit taking Ambassador Eikenberry to the palace to meet with Karzai. Um, and, and that made, you know, that complicated things because the military just couldn't do everything. And Karzai became more and more mercurial whenever he was around, Eikenberry was around. Um, so a lot of things were sort of working against him. He, he, he was told by Gates and Mullen that he had their support, whatever he needed, but I don't think the support was there as much as he wanted. And he did feel like he had good communication with the president, but there was not a lot of White House speeches supporting the war. And so that was, that was challenging for him there, and he felt he, he could have garnered more resources. It would have been easier to get more coalition uh, members, 48 coalition members, to, to provide more resources, to have a better you know, shock and awe effect, if you will, with the surge that was implemented there. So um, he did say, if he accomplished anything, it was to begin the transition process. And that's our ticket out, as you know. Um, he wasn't the only one responsible for designing that, obviously, but uh, implementing was key, and I think he'd done that before in Iraq. He's the only one that really led that military effort, so he did bring that to the table. Um, another key initiative was the, the VSO, the Village Stability Operations Afghan Local Police. Mm -hmm. Never grew to the scale that um, he had seen in Iraq, but I think that is an important initiative, sometimes questionable, but for providing security in the hinterland. Um, so there were a number of things that he lamented, as, as you recall, you know, he just didn't have the time to accomplish, um, but you know, he'll also say the surge of forces that were there did accomplish a lot. So as prior to about a month ago, I think insurgent attacks were down by 20% overall across the country. Um, our troop deaths were down. Civilian deaths were down. Those are some accomplishments that this, are worthy of... Actually, I need to ask one more question because that does then raise the obvious follow-up. If, if the lack of adequate time uh, for him was a big part of the problem, then we have to ask, well, what's going on now and what will happen in the next few years? And... Now, this gives you, if you like, an opportunity to talk about some of the people, again, that he's mentored over the years, some of the people you spent time with in the field, some of the uh, lieutenant colonels and colonels, and the one and two and three stars who are now running the war and who were helping him run the war even when he was, was in command. Knowing what you do about them, your colleagues, your fellow soldiers and Marines and airmen and women and, uh, and sailors, all of whom are working in Afghanistan, along with civilians and intelligence operatives, are you hopeful about the mission? Do you think that he left us in a place where the community that he had helped mentor can now take us to at least an acceptable outcome, uh, even if he didn't have the time to do it himself? Right. Well, um, and he will be the first to say he's not going to take credit for where we're at, whether it's good or bad. You know, As we've discussed before, there's been sort of a revolving door of commanders there, and if you only have a year on the ground to really... It takes a long time to learn the environment, to learn the human terrain, to make a difference. Obviously, you have a team under you that should be, you know, ideally, they're more of experts. But um, I think McChrystal sort of paved the way to um, 
you know, for the surge to come, obviously, and for operations to focus in the south and to, you know, the increase on night raids, which Petraeus gets criticized for, but that's part of a comprehensive counterinsurgency campaign. Um, I think, uh, you know, so you can't, I think one challenge I'd like, or one criticism I'd like to raise is this revolving door of very talented officers, mm. but we, we tie their, their hands mm. ostensibly by not giving them more time to really make a difference. Um, I think a lot of young officers feel that way, too. So in the book, I, I spent time in three infantry battalions in the 101st Airborne Division in different parts of Afghanistan. And I wanted to show how here's this grand strategy, here's, here's the theory of counterinsurgency, but here's how ugly it is on the ground and how difficult it is. And so I showed the stories of three battalion commanders and their troopers, and I went out on, on uh, patrols with them and lived, you know, shared hardships with them and got shot at a few times. I thought it was fun. My mom was like, you can't, you can't say that it was fun <laughs> to get shot at, but I enjoyed being back with the tribe, and I thought it, I'd be able to tell a better story if I could live it and experience it with them. And I came away so inspired. They go out there every day, not knowing if they're going to be greeted by a hand grenade or a handshake. That's how counterinsurgency is. You know, you don't know if the population's supporting you one day or, or if, it's an, if somebody's been flipped into being a supporter of the Taliban. So um, they're resilient, they're fighters. I think many of them hope that we do never commit to a large-scale boots-on-the-ground operation like this, and they agree with the way the military is going, that mm. we should have more of a security force assistance, foreign internal defense sort of approach to countering insurgencies and helping uh, local governments resist. Oh, this is great. Um, do we have microphones for the audience? or So, so please, uh, if you don't mind, get my attention and then wait for the mic. And, and I'll add one more thing. While oh, I'm sorry. No, just, please. You, you asked one question about are we in are we in the position where we can really transition or hope that, the, that we've won there or made progress? Um, the, the goal is, is limited. Um, nobody expects Afghanistan to become a Switzerland. That's a repeat <laughs> phrase in Washington and elsewhere. But if we can support the growth of the Afghan National Security Forces, which are at 352,000 right now, and they'll decrease because of the cost sustainment is just crazy, $4 billion a year or something like that. Um, if, if, we can, if we've developed them sufficiently and they can provide for their own security, then we can safely leave. We'll be there in overwatch for many years, but I think that the, the transition plan to allow them to do that is, is underway. Um, there will continue to be these kind of high-profile attacks on hotels against civilians and so forth, but um, I'd like to ask you, are you hopeful that yes. we're on the right path? Yes, although I'll just be brief and say I think so much of it hinges on the presidential elections in Afghanistan in 2014, because I think we need someone who is at least as good as President Karzai. I'll put it that way. Obviously, um, that may seem like a relatively low bar, but um, Karzai's also just been in that job too long, and he did some good things along the way. But there are a lot of potential candidates who are worse than Karzai and who will reinforce this problem of corruption. If that happens, I don't see the U.S. Congress holding up the bargain and providing several billion a year, which is a necessary prerequisite to even having a chance. So I think it really requires us to see a fairly good election or a good election outcome in Afghanistan in 2014. And so I'm increasingly focused on that as the key variable. But let's, let's go to all of you and please uh, questions for Paula. My question is here's, here's the microphone. Have the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan been worth the price America has paid? Uh, I don't know if you can put a price on the blood that's been spilled, if you ask the individual families um, who've lost service members. But I, uh, I profile a young soldier in one, in one chapter. Um, he was in the Argandab. He was trained as an artilleryman, but that unit was uh, 
acted as a provisional infantry unit because we didn't need to shoot artillery there. We needed to be out on patrol engaging with the population. So this young, about 24-year-old corporal um, is out on patrol. They're, they start taking in a, uh, they're attacked and they're pinned down. And he has three Afghans in his little um, squad with him. They've cleared an area to get there. But once they get pinned down, they have to exfil another way. And long story short, the, one of his Afghans doesn't understand that he shouldn't move out yet. And he moves out, and he's about to step on an IED. And this young corporal sees it, and he thinks, I should either shoot his legs out so he doesn't step on it, so he'll live, because it could destroy the whole, the whole group. He realizes he doesn't have time, and the Afghan doesn't hear him yelling. So he jumps up, he, jump, he runs over the IED, pushes the Afghan soldier off loses both legs, um, the soldier, the Afghan soldier was fine. He gets medevaced, of course, he's back in Walter Reed. And he sends an email, I don't know if you saw this email, David Bixler, to um, General Campbell, the head of the 101st Airborne Division, and he said, I will do it again. I, I'm serving my country, and um, you know, I was taught to act and not with remorse, and to take care of the guy on the right or left of me, even if I don't know them, and, and I'm glad I made these sacrifices. Um, but you see how he lives now, and he's struggling to find his new normal, if you will. His wife left him. Um, he, he can barely walk, and it's been a year and a half since um, he's gotten his prosthetics and so forth. Um, so when you hear troopers say that, they're really dedicated to the mission, it, it means a lot. Um, it's, it's very difficult, again, to put a price on, on those who've lost, who've lost family. But um, I think Iraq is a better place. If you meet any Iraqis, and I don't know if there are any here at the conference, but they are they're so grateful to David Petraeus for providing leadership and believing the tide could change there. Um, they feel their country is better off, even though the politics are pretty messy, and again, you could probably talk about <laughs> prospects for hope there and stability. Um, it really comes down to Maliki and whether he can show the leadership he needs to. And again, in Afghanistan, it comes down to leadership again. Um, if that country is, becomes a stable place, and Al-Qaeda and other groups that would wish to harm our interests cannot set up camp there and plan future attacks against us, then, um, then I think we can say it's worth it. But it's pretty expensive. I mean, I know the argument wouldn't be better to spend, we spend $1 million on a soldier per year that he or she is deployed in Afghanistan. Wouldn't it be great if we poured that into our public education? Because, oh, by the way, only a third of our high school students are qualified to join the military because they, they don't have a GED. They have some kind of um, felony or they're obese or have some other physical ailment. So it's a difficult argument to make. Um, but when I hear the troopers and the leaders saying they believe, they believe it's worth it and they're willing to continue to fight, that's, that gives me some, some hope. Um, Fred, here. Thank you. Uh, just as an observation, then quick observation, then a question. I think what separates David Petraeus from a lot of leaders is his humility. I think it's both endearing and, and, and a source of inspiration to his troops. Uh, my question is this. You don't get to be a David Petraeus, a leader of that magnificent uh, capability, without a solid foundation. In your case, you share the same foundation as a fellow member of the Long Gray Line. I wonder if you would comment on how much you feel West Point was important to his development as a leader, and would he have been the same leader without it? And, and uh, we should note that you're a grad as well, sir. F 59? A little biased there, yeah. It's exactly. Um, West Point is a very, very formative experience, but I think he was already formed before he went there in some ways. He was always driven. He always wanted to be the best at whatever he could, he could be. Um, I think he took service to something larger than himself very seriously. Um, 
But he, there were influential leaders there that made a difference in his life, General Knowlton. So he married the superintendent's daughter and got to know the Knowlton family quite well and sat at the dinner table with him and had these discussions about, not only about Vietnam, where Knowlton had served, and the lessons, the good lessons learned and the lessons we didn't learn there. Um, but also, Knowlton had, had worked with Eisenhower to stand up the Supreme Allied Command in Europe, so understanding world politics and so forth and so on. Um, so was that because he was at West Point? Possibly. Would he have had that interaction with four-star generals so early who, who then sort of adopted him? In fact, uh, explicitly called David Petraeus their, his fourth son, and David called him his military father. Uh, I think um, the biggest thing he took from there was that, that role model. Um, not so much the education. He was already a good time manager. He was already driven. He was already an athlete. But you can't deny that it's a very formidable experience. And I will say that later in his life, I think having the ties to that network of the Long Gray Line um, was part of his directed telescoping and the way he recruited folks from the social department to come and work on his team um, and their high caliber folks. So um, it was formative. I think he'd still be an exceptional officer even if he hadn't gone there. Sir, right there, yeah. This is a question more about uh, po long-term problems in Afghanistan. Karzai is from a very small minority, uh, and it's a tribal country. How can we expect to succeed in, in Afghanistan with all the tribal interactions when, you, when someone is, is managing the country from such a small uh, base? Well, Mike wrote a book on Afghanistan. You might be better qualified to talk a little bit about the tribal challenges, but also um, uh, reconciliation amongst tribes and you know, some of the leaders on the Peace Council and so forth. Do you want to comment on that? I'll just offer a couple of thoughts, although she probably should correct me uh, and chime in if, if you like after I'm done. One thought is that there is still a sense of Afghan na nationhood. And a lot of times in the Western media, we talk about how it was never really a real country and it's, uh, you know doesn't have a strong history of identity. But if you ask Afghans who they consider themselves to be, they often say Afghans. Now, they'll, they'll say, in addition, I'm from this tribe or what have you. But I think there's less blatant sectarianism, at least so far, than there was in Iraq, for example. And that's my impression. Now, that could change if the 2014 elections or other dynamics go in a negative way. Uh, but I think there's some sense of wanting the whole project to work. Also, for all of his flaws, Karzai has done a few things right. Um, in terms of trying to build bridges across different ethnic groups. We picked him in the first place because he was acceptable to different groups in the country. And he's tried to govern, and even though he's been a relatively ineffective president, and I'm not here to defend President Karzai's overall governance accomplishments, politically, he's probably been as good as that country could have uh, provided, at least in the early years, at, for example, having a Tajik first vice president and a Zara second vice president a Tajik Minister of Interior. These are the kinds of appointments that he's made for some key positions. Now, again, I, I'm, I'm sounding... Well, that's, well, yes, my point is it's easy to get plenty of Pashtuns, and, and he's done that, too. Um, that's exactly my point. He's, he's a Pashtun himself, and the next president of Pakistan or Afghanistan will be Pashtun, almost for sure. And it would probably be worrisome if, if, if he weren't, uh, given what that could portend. But I think the, you know, the sort of the Lebanon model, which is, again, not a very happy uh, model, but there are times where Lebanon sort of struggled on through, where you have some sense of power sharing across different 
major sectarian groups, maybe about the best we can hope for in Afghanistan. And I think Karzai has established a model that is potentially sustainable. What you need to do is reduce the corruption and the sense that the state has been hijacked by people who are using it for their own interests. That's a bigger problem, I think, right now than this ethnic divisiveness or tribal divisiveness. Uh, yes, sir. And then we'll keep moving. Okay, you'll be next. Um, Paul, I'm sure you've had the discussion, and unfortunately I haven't read your book, but um, has the general uh, ever discussed the presidency or his theoretical run for the presidency with you? Yes. That he won't do it. <laughs> he's not interested. Um, he, he's been on public record for a long time saying he, he's just not interested. And so then the next question is why not? Because he's so driven and being number one is so important to him and contributing is so important. Well, the excuse he gives is that Holly doesn't want their family to be exposed to that. She's a very private person and um, just feels like he, you know, she supported him through all of his deployments and that's something she doesn't want to expose their family to and he's trying to honor that. Um, but he also feels like he doesn't want to play politics and um, that he, to win a primary he'd have to pander to the left or right, you know, the, the extremes and he's not willing to do that. I think he's enough of a leader that he could just have his own positions and, and people would respect that. Um, but he, uh, that's another excuse he gives, that he doesn't want to play politics. And um, as I've talked to him in his mentoring role, and um, I've thought about getting into politics a little bit myself, he, he, he just feels like politics corrupts people. And not not saying that as a negative judgment, if anybody in here is a politician, but um, he just, he personally feels like he's been used so much by politicians. And if you, if you read his testimony, you can see politicians on both sides of the aisle trying to drive a wedge between the military and the president and him being used in that regard. So um, I think he's turned off of politics, but he has a personal family reason that he's not interested in running either. Now, he would love to stay at the agency. He, he says it's the best job in Washington. Um, I think he'd also enjoy being SecDef or Sec Secretary of State. And um, hopefully whoever the next president is will keep him in some positions. Sir. Not as a running mate. Could you discuss the uh, challenges of transitioning from the military to the CIA and what kind of cultural yes. ch challenges mm -hmm. he did face? Well, the second to last chapter of, of our book is called uh, Mask of Command because um, I really saw how he was struggling. You know, I was there the last few weeks he was in command in Afghanistan. He was struggling with leaving early, struggling with, you know, did I accomplish everything I could, struggling with, Am I ready to join this new agency and leave this tribe behind? And if you know him well enough, he's an extremely positive person. He's got the best attitude. And he, um, sometimes it drives me nuts. He will just not admit failure, defeat, or sadness, or frustration. I don't know if that drives you nuts, but I'm like, just, it's okay to commiserate once in a while. But he drives on. And yet I saw, you know, and that's why I call it Mask of Command, because occasionally he would we'd sit in his office with, you know, another, like, Mike Meese, who knows him well, and, and he would talk about how much he was going to miss it. And I don't think he understood the real different culture in the agency, even though he'd worked with the agency quite a bit. Um, so he, I saw him kind of struggle with this, leave command. We, we flew out of Kabul together back to Europe, and he went on this little tour de force. And he just wanted to keep so busy so that he didn't have to think about it. I don't know if you operate like that, but, you know, that's how you compartmentalize things in your life. And, and his staff and I were like, what's going on? But it was clear he just wasn't ready to process it. And he equated it to 
if you watch drag racing at all, um, you know, when the chute deploys, the drogue chute behind my car, like, it just, like, stopped like that. You're done with command. And he wasn't ready for it to be done. So um, then he had two months off, and it was just like he wanted to be really busy, but there wasn't that much work to do. So I took advantage of that with uh, taking more time to interview and, and go through the family archives and work with the family. But when he got to the agency, um, he went there and didn't take any military uh, subordinates by design. Um, because there are a number of questions that he would try to militarize the agency and then he would bring in his little um, protective circle and be isolated on an island. And he didn't, he didn't want that perception to exist at all. He later brought over his legislative affairs senior Navy officer, um, Chip Walters, but that's the only person he's brought to his team there, and Chip retired before joining him. Um, the, the culture is different. In, and I'm an intel officer, I can relate a little bit in that you know you, you, you live a kind of compartmentalized life, obviously. Um, he's such a public general. He likes communicating with the press. He likes public relations, and that's a no-go there. So I saw his staff have to, his CIA public relations team have to retrain him, and it was very frustrating for him. But now he realizes that you know it can be more effective when you just say can't comment. You know you can you can get a little bit more done, or you know that, that's the president's decision, not our agency's decision. Um, there's a, I, I mentioned this earlier that he's a real physical fitness buff, and I, I don't think that is highly emphasized at the agency. Um, and so he has a hard time finding someone to run with and work out with. But that's so, such an important part of his life, and he's always used that to inspire others and challenge. And they just kind of don't care. And I'm generalizing, which is horrible, but um, he, uh, I think, would like to change that aspect of the culture there. And you know, you, we all feel better about ourselves when we exercise. So um, he, he hasn't gotten as much cachet off of <laughs> his physical fitness prowess. Um, let's see if there are other uh, cultural differences. Um, I think a big change for him has been the shift from this focus on one country or 20 countries while he was at CENCOM to the global coverage, and there's been a huge learning curve for him. He, he's always been an avid reader. Uh, he reads about a book a week and, and uh, reads every, you know, the early bird and every other publication that comes out on a daily basis, but to suddenly have to go and do the deep dive, and I think Mike's helped him with some of this, but um, that's not necessarily a cultural shift, but that, I think that's the biggest thing he's had to adapt to, this global, this global mission. Let's see if we can do a lightning round. Two questions together, and then here, I'll give you a piece of paper to take a note if you wish. Uh, yes, sir, and then in the back, and then we'll have to wrap up, I guess. Uh, General Petraeus seems to be so closely identified with the, counterinsur with the counterinsurgency strategy. He wrote the Army Doctrine, basically. He implemented it in Iraq. That strategy seems to be losing some favor. Uh, it's unlikely the U.S. is going to engage in a major counterinsurgency like we have in Afghanistan and in Iraq in the foreseeable future. What does General Petraeus think about that? And secondly, what does that mean for his legacy? Mm -hmm. And then if I could just add the last question and let's let you wrap up all together. So in the back, please. Uh, which, uh, which 20th century army general do you think influenced uh, General Petraeus the most? And in particular, uh, did he have any special views on General MacArthur? Sorry, the last part of your question? MacArthur. Did he have any special views of General MacArthur's way of leadership? Um, okay, first let me start with the coin legacy. He actually wrote in his uh, 1987 published PhD from Princeton that we shouldn't do large-scale counterinsurgency operations, that the preferred approach was, you know, 
train the locals to fight for themselves. And he'd do that with a security force assistance package. So um, he said in his retirement remarks that, um, you know, we should, we shouldn't, you know, obviously Secretary Gates said any, I think echoing MacArthur, right? Any future president that decides to, to commit to this type of war again should have his head examined. Uh, I think Petraeus kind of agrees with that. To, to your question, ma'am, about is it worth the, the cost in blood and treasure and can we achieve our goals? Um, but he will also be the first to say we cannot lose the lessons we've learned from these wars. And insurgencies are not going to go away. We will have to probably have some response to them in the future. And so we should maintain readiness for full spectrum operations. And I think there are enough junior officers um, and, and soldiers who understand those lessons and will ensure that they're preserved in the system. I hope. That's my hope. Um, and goodness knows there's a lot of scholarship now. I don't know what's going on at Harvard, Megan, but um, there are full, many centers at prestigious universities that are still focused a lot on counterinsurgency and the lessons we've learned. Um, so for his legacy, I think he'll always be remembered as someone who really um, innovated, brought the military forward. He wasn't the only one doing counterinsurgency correctly, but um, he was the one who sort of led the change institutionally. And I think he will be forever remembered for that. Uh, there's a bit of irony now because these, these, the drone attacks that CIA may or may not <laughs> lead uh, aren't quite focusing on winning hearts and minds, right? And they're uh, pretty controversial. So that's, that's what I will find interesting in the future. Like he was the king of coin, but now he's the king of something that's kind of anti-coin. Um, and the other question um, about his, his role models, if you will. His favorite role models, I'll just give you his favorite role models, but Grant... He's always kind of seen himself as, as a grant uh, model, if you will. He was asked to join the board of directors for the grant tomb, and he, he couldn't do it. But it, he, was, he was kind of heartbroken over that because he feels like such a respected general, and his grave is totally, it's been, uh, it's, it's not in good care. And I think he's thinking about his own legacy in that regard. Um, he admired Field Marshal Slim, um, who's not an American general, but who wrote a book called Defeat into Victory. And he admired him because he sees, Petraeus sees himself as a turnaround guy. Like, you know, last-ditch effort, let's call Petraeus to try to save the day. So um, this, uh, this story about uh, Slim's efforts in Burma was really inspirational for him. Um, he, other generals that really meant a lot to him. I mean, he's, he's taken lessons from Marshall and Eisenhower, um, but the ones he talks about the most are Grant and, and Field Marshal Slim. Please join me in thanking Paula. Thank you.